Well, like some of you, I had the opportunity to go to the Silver Ring thing on uh, last Wednesday. And it was uh, fun to be there and to uh, see the excitement. I appreciated just the, the message, the cl- clean and clear message of uh, abstinence, of sexual purity that was taught in both, uh, in both groups. And there are really two groups represented. There was the 700, 800 uh, youth that were here in the sanctuary, and there's about 200 parents over in the fellowship hall. And it was interesting for me to kind of observe, too, just kind of the different cultures that were represented between those two groups. Uh, you know, those of us who were over in the fellowship hall, um, we had already experienced adolescence. Um, we understood some of those challenges. They were people who were well-read, uh, people who were uh, anxious to help their children navigate the waters of, of youth. And yet the people over here, this was a whole other culture. Um, they were kind of the young, the hip, the media-driven uh, group, anxious to become the, the next great generation, as they talked about it. What was interesting was how, um, for both groups, the message was pretty much the same. Uh, yet, the way it was presented was quite different. In the group that met in the fellowship hall, there was just one speaker, and he kind of just went through the information in a calm, uh, uh, personal way. But the group that was in here was a whole different show. Um, It it was a a place that had two big uh, screens, media going all the time. Uh, There was a smoke machine. There was pyrotechnics that would shoot up. There was a chainsaw. Um, There was peer testimonies and heart-bumping music. Um, Mike, our our tech guy, came down afterwards. I said, Mike, did you get all that stuff specked out? You know, I know that the 11 o'clock service would love some of that. Um, (laughs) But it was very interesting to see that that it was the same message, but different forms based on the different cultures. Well, why is culture important to us? You know, advertising companies spend millions of dollars every, every year trying to tirelessly analyze every aspect of our culture so that they can target ads specifically at you to get you to buy stuff. But culture is also the place where we express ourselves. It's the place where we communicate and where we learn. The late professor of anthropology and missions, Paul Hebert, describes it this way. By cultural, we mean the more or less integrated systems of beliefs, feelings, values, and worldviews. Beliefs, feelings, values, and worldview. Shared by a group of people and communicated by means of their system of symbols or their forms, we might say. Well, you know, experiencing new cultures could be a, can be a terrifying experience for some of us. I imagine that some, if they were in the youth event, would have been a bit terrified by, you know, the sparks flying and the chainsaws. It can be uncomfortable at times for us, too. Some of the youth maybe sitting in the parents' time would have felt mm, a little uncomfortable. Um, and yet it can also be uh, an experience that's adventurous and informative and insightful. A lot depends on our circumstances and our attitudes and motivations. But I think one thing that's interesting is hard for us to identify aspects within our own culture. And that's because we've grown up with it. Culture is just who we are. It's part of our, of our, our general everyday experiences. That's one of the reasons why I enjoy uh, inviting people to uh, go out and be a part of an international short-term team. Sometimes having the opportunity to leave our country to go into a whole new culture, um, if we're willing to, allows us to learn some tremendous insights about ourselves and about other people. It allows us to see the world through another set of lenses. Well, that's true sometimes even within our own culture, uh, even within our own city. 
I remember when we were serving as missionaries in Mexico City, we invited uh, a young girl, Maggie, to come and work with us. And she was from Mexico City, and um, uh, we thought it would be a great place for her to be able to serve. And after about a week or two, she got together with Diana and I, and I remember her just lamenting. She goes, I just don't understand the people in this neighborhood. And we're like, well, Maggie, what do you mean? She goes, well, they think different, they talk different. And what occurred to us was that Maggie, while she was from the same culture, she spoke the same language, she even grew up in the same city, Maggie was from a a middle-income family. And we were working in a very poor area of the city. And the cultures were very different. Why is it important to understand cultures? Because things are changing so much around us. In our world, our nation, our city, our schools, all of those things are changing. What are the things that are influencing culture around the world? One of them, I think, is, uh, is media. Uh, when we think about how media influences ourselves, this is true for around the world. In fact, if I were to show you um, this picture, what would you say that represents? Coca-Cola, that's right. You know, Coca-Cola boasts a 94% brand recognition around the world. 94% of the world's population would recognize this symbol as Coca-Cola. I mean, that's amazing when you think about it. They serve over 700 million uh, drinks of Coca-Cola a day in 200 200 countries. In fact, I mean, I've heard even animals now are drinking (laughs) Coca-Cola. Well, work is another place that influences things around the world. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but McDonald's is trying something new. They now have a way of... um, outsourcing their, uh, their drive-up meal service. So in other words, when you pull into a McDonald's now and you order your meal at the menu, you may not be talking to a person that's inside the restaurant anymore. Um, they're experimenting with that, actually going to a call center in Colorado where they process it, send it back to the restaurant, and then the guys fix the meal and give it to you when you pull up through. So they can literally um, do hundreds and hundreds of more meals that way. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I mean, if they can do that in Colorado, they could, they could outsource it to India. I mean, it could be anywhere. In fact, wait a minute, isn't that the Mars rover there? Things are changing around the world. Uh, if you've been reading the papers lately, you've noticed that uh, Ford Motor Company just recently sold uh, two of their most prestigious lines, the Jaguar and the um, Land Cruiser, to an Indian uh, car company called Tata Motors. Um, And so now two of the world's most prestigious lines are actually owned by an Indian company. The same company um, just released this year uh, the Nano, which is the world's cheapest car, $2,500. Trade is changing the world. Thomas Friedman recently wrote a book entitled The World is Flat, and I recommend it to you. Uh, He talks about the the global uh, impact of how things are changing and the converging of three factors, new players, uh, a new playing field, and new processes. Or we could think of them as um, global citizens, um, global economies, and global information technologies. He says this, The scale of the global community that is soon going to be able to participate in all sorts of discovery and innovation is something that the world has simply never seen before. Well, these kinds of global changes are also affecting the church. You know, when you think of uh, a typical Christian today, what what comes to your mind's eyes? Uh, Maybe it's, you know, something like this, a a preacher. uh, Or maybe it's a a family um, get-together. Well, David Livermore describes in his book, um, Serving with Eyes Wide Open, uh, the changes that are taking place even in the Christian world um, around the globe. 
And one of those is that the average Christian today would not look like this family. Rather, the average Christian today in in the world would be uh, probably a female um, living in a a village in Nigeria or in a Brazilian favela. Um, She would be poor. She would be uh, theologically conservative, non-white, and uh, young. At Wayside, we're we're thinking through what does it mean to... um, bridge the gap in this ever-changing world. And you might have heard us talk about the term glocal. Um, glocal is not a misspelled global. Um, it's, it's the combining of two words, global and local, because no longer can we see them as these two distinct areas. We've been talking about Acts 1-8 over these past few years and how Jesus calls us to be his witnesses in the here, in the near, in the far. And that's really what glocal is. It's global and local together. In fact, uh, this coming April 25th, I want to invite those of you who are interested, we're going to have a, a glocal outreach or a go gathering um, on a Friday evening. We're coming together as all those serving in the local and the global ministries at Wayside um, to share and to celebrate some of the things God's been doing to network together. We're going to have a great musical group from Rwanda there and some testimonies um, from one of our barefoot doctors as well. And if you would like to attend that, I want to welcome you to that as well. Just let Beth Butler know so that we can plan on that. But, you know, our, cha- our community around us is also changing. And I'm sure that you have seen that. Uh, recently, we uh, uh, commissioned a Percepts study to be done, which is a, more of an advanced uh, demographic study in a two-mile area right around Wayside Chapel. Um, and it's interesting some of the things that came out. Uh, one of the things that came out was just how extremely diverse this area is right where our church is located. There's actually 33 of 50 of the Census Bureau lifestyle groups represented in this two-mile two mile areas, 33 out of 50. And they categorize that as extremely diverse. Um, you can see the red area there is, is a growing population of Hispanics around us. About 62% in this two-mile area are Hispanic, 32% Anglo, 3% African American, 2% Asian. Um, people in this area are worried about gangs. Uh, people in this area are worried about uh, a rising divorce rate. Challenges that they're facing as single parents, as families living in this community. Um, But yet they're also interested in spiritual things and finding a church that teaches spiritual truths. Our uh, local teams council has been working at um, just strategizing how can we more effectively reach out to those right here in this area. We've talked with uh, Colonial Hills School, which is just a mile and a half away, and Vance Jackson about ways we might be able to partner with them. It's It's categorized as a special needs school. Um, there's just tremendous needs for these students. It's, it's overcrowded. Uh, many of their parents work um, full-time jobs. Both parents are single parents. And the kids need help with tutoring and with mentoring. You know, before we used to think uh, only foreign missionaries really needed to be trained in cross-cultural skills. But I think more and more today, because the world is becoming flat, because our communities are becoming much more multicultural, All of us need to understand, to begin to think a little bit like missionaries, to be able to communicate the gospel message. Pastor Stephen Ear says it this way, The missional process is the shift from the church as an institution in a Christian culture to a community in mission in a non-Christian culture. To the church in a Christian culture, which really the United States is not a Christian culture anymore, to a church, to a community in mission within a non-Christian culture. 
You know, we're not the first church in the history of the world, though, to be challenged with understanding a changing culture and adapting our forms for the sake of communicating the gospel. This morning, I want to look a little bit uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you have your Bibles and want to open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I want to start there. Paul is addressing some of the the needs that he's seeing, some of the the challenges within the church in, in Corinth. And chapter 80 begins by saying this. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we, have, that, we, that we all have knowledge. But knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes he knows anything, he's not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one God. You see, what was happening was um, some of the mature believers in the church um, were getting meat that had been sacrificed to idols in one of the pagan temples. And they were eating it. It was causing a problem for some of the younger believers because they yet didn't have a full understanding of the differences between Christianity and pagan idolism. And so as they were watching these other people in the church um, eat this meat that was sacrificed to idols, it was confusing for them. And yet the people that um, knew better, they knew that there's only one God and therefore there really isn't such a thing as uh, anything sacrificed to another God because that meat is actually the same meat as you can get at the marketplace if there's only one God. Now they knew all this, but the problem was that they were putting their knowledge above the importance of caring for their other brothers and sisters in the church. And Paul calls out to them, you, you know, you need to stop this. You might know the difference. You might theologically understand that you're correct. But you're wrong because you're not, you're causing your brother to stumble and you're not loving them. In fact, in verse 13, he kind of sums that up and he says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not be the cause of my brother to stumble. See, Paul chose to give up legitimate freedoms or liberties that he might have for the sake of a higher cause. He asked himself, well, what's best for the church? Not what's best for me. You know, it might have been more expensive to get meat at the market, um, but Paul said, what's best for the church? What's best for my other brothers and sisters? That's the the application that Paul was making. And then in chapter 9, he goes on to apply that same truth of uh, surrendering his rights for the betterment of others. But now he applies it not to the church, but rather to those who are yet outside the church. And he goes on and he says in chapter 9, verse 1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? Are Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. See, Paul's saying, you know, am I not free? I have certain rights. I'm an apostle. I'm your apostle. In fact, because I'm your apostle, um, actually you owe me a wage. And it's okay for me to eat some of the food that you all do. And yet Paul says, I gladly give those things away. Verse 12, he says that. He says, um, nevertheless, we did not use this right. But we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel. Paul had the right, but he chose to to lay them aside. He was willing to give up anything that it might possibly cause a hindrance for someone coming to know Christ. He realized that there was one message, the gospel, but many forms. 
Let's read on in verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more. To the Jews I became a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, I became like one without the law, though not being without the law myself, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. It's as if Paul was saying, you know, by one form or another, um, I would do anything so that I might win some to Christ. You know, he says, I'm willing to be made a slave. And the word in Greek that he uses for slaves is, is the word that we use for bondservant. A bondservant was someone who voluntarily sold himself into slavery. Now, it's said that there are, there are actually people in Paul's day that took his message so much to heart that they went and sold themselves into slavery so that they could be close to the slaves. They could have free access to talk with them, to interact with them, to identify with them, and to bring the message, the gospel message to them. Paul says, to the Jew, to those under the law, I became like one under the law. He observed not eating meat, sacrificed idols. He performed the Jewish rites and the vows. He honored the Jewish feasts. He, he classified himself as a Pharisee. He still identified with his Jewish heritage so that he might win some. To those without the law or to the Gentiles, he identified with them. He met them on their own turf, fitting in as much as he could. He didn't make them become like him. He went to them. To the weak, he became weak. So that in all things to all men, he might win some. Paul limited himself in whatever ways he could to bring the gospel to others. But you have to ask, if we're, as we're looking at that, why would Paul do that? Why would he give up stuff that was his rightfully to have? Why would he give up um, some of the privileges that were hurt, his. Why would he live in such a way that would limit things that he felt comfortable with so that others might come to know Christ? Well, it reminds me a little bit of a, of a, a, a zealous farmer who uh, came in and saw his pastor one day and he was wanting to express his commitment to God. And he said, Pastor, if I had 50 pigs, I would give 25 of them to the work of the Lord. And the pastor said, wow, that's, that's great. Um, if you had 30, would you, would you give 15 of them? And he said, yeah, I would do that. If I had 30, I would give 15. And he said, well, if, if you had 10, would you, would you give five? And, and he said, yeah, if I, if I had 10, I would give five to the work of the Lord. I'm committed. And, and then the pastor said, well, if you, had, if you had two, if you had two, would you give one of them? And he said, oh, pastor, you know I only have two pigs. You see, it was easy for him to give away all the stuff he didn't have that was never really his to give. But when it was talking about what was really his, those two pigs, it was kind of a different story. He was holding back. What would cause a volunteer to sacrifice hours of their time to serve in their local church? In a world with such busyness, with so many demands, why would somebody do that? 
They could be making more money. They could be doing lots of other things. Why would they volunteer time? Why would a missionary leave their home and their friends and their culture and all their opportunities to go to another place and uh, be subject to all sorts of challenges? What would motivate you? What would motivate you to sacrifice for the sake of another? Paul says, you know what? It's not really about money. It's not about the things that were owed to me. It's not really even about me. In verse 16 he says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Why would Paul say that? We think of his conversion experience, and I really enjoy, appreciate the, the, um, the version of that found in Acts chapter 26, when Paul is uh, recounting his conversion to King Agrippa. And I want to read it to you in the message version. He says, We fell flat, flat on our faces. And then I heard in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you out to get me? Why do you insist on going against the grain? And I said, Who are you, Master? And the voice answered, I am Jesus, the one who you are hunting down like an animal. But now up on your feet, and I have a job for you. I've picked you, handpicked you to be a servant and a witness to what's happened here today and to what I'm going to show you. And I'm sending you off to open the eyes of the outsiders, the Gentile nations, so that they can see the difference between dark and light and choose the light, so that they can see the difference between God and Satan and choose God. I'm sending you off to present my offer of sins forgiven and a place in the family, inviting them into the company of those who begin real living by believing in me. You see, since Paul had his personal encounter with Christ, since he recognized the lordship of God in his life, he was under an obligation to tell that story to others. Not to hold it into himself, but to give it away, to preach the good news. So what are the lessons for us in that? Well, the first lesson, I think, is that the way of Christ is the way of releasing our own rights for the sake of others. The way of Christ is the way of releasing our own rights for the sake of others. In the church, we must realize that it's not all about our theological knowledge and understanding, though that's important. It's also about setting that aside and loving somebody who doesn't have that same depth, maybe, of theological understanding. To those who visit us, who live around us, we must be willing to cross through the cultural barriers that separate us. To allow some of our forms to be changed so that we can have that identification with them. Paul Hebert writes this. He says, how does the gospel move from one culture to another? In our day of mass media and modern technology, we're tempted to think of television and the radio and internet. But rather... The communication of the gospel across the chasms of cultural differences rests upon the quality of interpersonal relationships between human beings. It's this relationship of people of one culture to the people of another that he calls cultural bridges. I love that term, to become a cultural bridge. How are we being cultural bridges in in the lives of people around us? It's really expressed in the incarnation. Wasn't that what Jesus did when he came here? When he left heaven and crossed the cosmos and crashed into our world to become human, to dwell amongst us? He ate our food. He spoke our language. He shared our sorrows. 
yet without giving up his divine nature? See, incarnation means identification, but it doesn't mean denying who we originally are. And just as God came in order that we might hear the gospel message, we need to cross those barriers so that others can hear too. I think another lesson that's important for us is to realize that there is one message, but many forms. One message, but many forms. And that message is the gospel message. The message that must not change is the gospel. It's knowing that when we recognize our own sinfulness and we ask and confess that to God and believe in faith that what Christ did on the cross was the complete sacrifice and payment of those sins, that we can be reconciled to our loving God and that he forgives our sins and welcomes us into his family. That's the message And those of us who have that message, who know that, can rejoice every day that we have been changed forever, that we have an eternal place with God. Paul says, this is the message that I was willing to change all of my other forms to share. But recognize, too, that there's many forms that that needs to take on. Was Paul being inconsistent when he said he became all things to all men? I mean, today we might say, well, that sounds like a people pleaser. But I don't think Paul was being inconsistent. He recognized the need for him to let go of certain things so that others might hear. You see, it wasn't all about Paul. It was about wanting that other person to be able to hear and understand. When he preached to the Jews, he started with the Old Testament preachers. And when he taught the Gentiles. He began with the God of creation. He looked for those places, those forms within their cultures that he could express the good news of Christ. Maybe a simple example of how we can have one message but uh, different forms uh, might be simply in this. If I was to announce to you and let you know that um, on April 27th we're going to have a bilingual prayer meeting at 1230 uh, over in the fellowship hall. O si, para decir la misma cosa en español, me da mucho placer invitarles a una reunión de la oración al, al día 27 de este mes a las doce y media. Y queremos que ustedes vengan a participar con nosotros. Now, that was the same message in English and Spanish, or close anyway. Um, but it was a different form. It was a different language. Now, for some of you, maybe when you heard me speaking in uh, some words that weren't so familiar, that might have caused some uncomfortable feeling. Some of you might have thought, oh, wait a minute, are we speaking in tongues or what's going on here? Uh, Others of you might have thought, orale, this guy speaks my language. (laughs) And and you identified with that. It's the same message, different forms. What's important is that we're able and we're willing to adapt our forms to accurately bring the same message to different cultures that surround us. So what about Wayside? Why are we talking here this morning about values and forms and culture? Why is that important? Well, I think because all of us are influenced by the cultures around us, and we express that in many different forms. To be effective ambassadors for Christ, we must become aware of our own cultural forms here at church. Um, I think to be effective, we're going to need to become more bilingual, at least in our expression of things. You see, Wayside has our own culture. We express it by the architecture of our buildings. 
We express it by how we dress. We express it by the words we use to describe things. We express it by how we greet each other, how we talk, how we linger, how we say goodbye. Uh, On the Wednesday morning prayer time that our staff gets together, um, uh, one of the things I enjoy doing is going around and shaking everybody's hand. We kind of get in a circle, and as I come in, I'll shake everybody's hands, or as they come in, I'll shake their hand. And sometimes they tease me and say, what, are you running for office, Rick? You know, why do you do that? It, because it wasn't a cultural form in the past. But it's one of the things that living in Mexico so long taught us that it's important um, to reach out and to shake a person's hand when you meet them. Um, there's a connection there. And it's one of those things I said, I'm not going to let go of that tradition, that form, because I think it's important to make that connection. Uh, we express our culture in how we handle our children. You know, in other countries, um, this place would also be filled with little kids um, because they don't have nurseries and they just, kids are part of the service. Um, we express our culture in how we order ourselves when we come into the service. We express our culture in who we choose to sit with or in some cases who we choose to sit away from. We express our culture in what we do after the service and how we welcome guests. Now, some of the cultural forms and practices I think that we have at Wayside really do enhance the message of the gospel. They go hand in hand with that. But I also have to wonder, are there practices, are there attitudes, are there things that we do that we hold dearly, that maybe have been part of our culture for a long time, but aren't necessarily a form today that is working for us to help communicate the gospel? I know this would never happen here, but uh, maybe you've thought to yourself one of these thoughts. Uh, When others are set in their ways, they're obstinate. But when you are, we call it faithfulness. When your neighbor doesn't like your friends, um, he or she is prejudiced. But when uh, you don't like your neighbor's friends, you're just um, someone with good uh, judgment of character. When someone picks flaws and things apart, they're cranky and critical. But when you do, you're just being creative. When we think about that as a church, when other churches are set in their ways, they're antiquated and irrelevant. But when your church is set in its ways, it's faithful to its traditions. When other churches don't welcome people different than themselves, they're prejudiced. When your church doesn't, it's because you're a good good judge of human character. When someone makes a negative comment about your church, they're cranky and critical. When you make a negative comment about another, you're just being creative. When someone saves a seat for themselves in another church because they always sit in the same place, why, that's just outrageous. But when that happens in your church, and someone's sitting in your seat, you just inform them of the error in their ways. What forms would Paul warn us about? that we have inadvertently allowed to become barriers between us and others. You see, I think one of the problems is that we tend to um, see forms of culture and the values within those cultures as the same thing. And we can associate them uh, more than they are their right to be. Now, granted, there is a relationship, but they're different. The form is the expression of that culture, of that value. It's the reflection of it in a cultural setting. 
And we have to be careful not to combine in our minds form and value. They're two different things. The problem is, is when we start seeing our forms as the values, then we won't let go of them when there's a need for change to better reflect that within the culture. We don't let go of our value. We don't let go and change the message. But we have to be willing to be renovating those forms in relevant ways within the culture. It's pretty obvious that we do some of that here. We have a 9.15 more contemporary service. And we have an 11 o'clock more, cont- or sorry, more contemporary service at 11 o'clock and more traditional at 9.15. They're different forms um, because we care about reaching out in different ways to the culture. So what are you willing to give up so that others might come to Christ? What forms are you willing to set aside so that others might come to Christ? Students, what are you willing to give up so that your parents or your grandparents might come to Christ? Are you willing to unplug your iPods um, to go visit them in the nursing home or to, to go over and mow their lawns or do things that aren't convenient for you, that aren't your responsibility maybe, but so that they might come to know Christ. Adults, what are you willing to do? Families, what are you willing to do so that others might come to know Christ? Grandparents, what are you willing to do so that your grandchildren might come to know Christ? What forms are you willing to give up that might be dear to you and yet that create a barrier for someone else so that Others might come to Christ. See, I believe we all want to see the world changed, and we want to see true faith in Christ. But let it never be said of us that we were the ones unwilling to change so that others could better hear the message. Let it not ever be said of us that we were the ones unwilling to change. Never forget how important it is To never grow silent in being willing to cross those cultural barriers to share Christ. Uh, this is a book by Tom Rainer, and he set out and interviewed over hundreds of uh, people who, what he defines as unchurched. In other words, people that didn't grow up in a church. They, they grew up outside of a church home and basically had very little contact with the church. And they had, these people had come to know Christ, and he went and interviewed them, trying to understand um, more about their lives. What were those barriers that separated them from the Christian message before that? And I want to read this one story that he has in here from a girl named Marion. It says, uh, she's a one-year Christian from Indianapolis. And we asked her to share with us what church members and Christians should hear from someone who was lost without Christ for the first 41 years of their life. Tell them, Marianne begins, that the world and Satan will give them many reasons not to be bold in telling others about Jesus. They will even have many reasons not to invite someone to church. She pauses with obvious intensity in her face. But tell them never to accept those excuses. The unchurched do want to be invited to church. The lost do want to be told how to be saved. Marianne is now holding back her tears as she continued slowly. But what if Paula had not cared enough to invite me to church? What if no one had been there for me during my divorce? 
What if no Christian had the guts and the conviction to tell me about Jesus? Tell them, Tom, to stop listening to the lies of Satan and the world and to be obedient. For there are millions of people who are like me, waiting on someone like them to be unashamed of what they believe. To cross the barriers of culture and form to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, I want you to know as we close this morning that I believe in you. I believe in our elders and I believe in our staff and the ways that God is working amongst us as a congregation. We are changing. We are becoming different. And while there are still habits and practices that maybe we need to re-look at in our lives and as a church family, God is beginning to move wayside into our communities in some new and exciting ways. I believe in you because I'm seeing us move in that direction. I believe in us because I know that God will complete the good work that he's begun here. I believe in you because I know that you care too much. You care too much not to give up what you cannot keep so that you might gain what you can never lose. You see, Paul was willing to take the message of the gospel and communicate it to others through one form or another so that, so that others might come to Christ. Ed Stetzer writes about the church this way, and he says, We have a sender, Jesus, and we have a message, the gospel, and a people to whom we are sent, real people in the culture. And it is worth the effort to go beyond our personal preferences and to proclaim a faithful gospel in whatever context we find ourselves. We all find ourselves in different contexts. We all have opportunities to cross those cultural barriers to bring Christ. Paul concludes kind of his thinking on this whole section in the end of chapter 10, verse 31. He says this, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. So that they may be saved. Would you pray with me this morning? Oh, Father, I thank you this morning that you were willing to give up your throne and to come here to earth to put on human flesh, to walk amongst us, to identify with us, and then to give your life as a sacrifice for our sinfulness, to pay the cost. Lord, you were not obligated to do any of that. And yet you you were because of your love for us. Oh, Father, help us to set aside those things which we hold so dearly and so fast to ourselves sometimes. Some of the forms, some of the expressions of our church or of our lives or um, ways that we think, our attitudes. And Lord, you and you alone know what those things are this morning. I don't pretend to know what those things are in any of our lives. But you do. And I pray that you would speak to us the remainder of this day. Challenge us with being willing to give up that which we can, Lord, so that others might come to Christ. Lord, give us the courage to let go of some of those things because we want to see other people 
experience that same joy of reconciling our relationship with you. Father, I know that um, we come and we will go today into many different circumstances throughout the week. And I pray that you would give us a victorious life this week. That you would help us to see those ways and places where we can connect with other people, where we can love them in the name of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us navigate the challenges that we will face this week. May you encourage us and may we know that you go with us, that you are present with us as we walk together arm in arm with you. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the ways that you are allowing us to serve and to be a part of your kingdom work, both locally, globally, and locally. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you'd like someone to pray with you this morning, I want to encourage you. There's people after the service that would love to pray with you. Go and live your lives this week, not for your own profit, but for the profit of others, so that many might come to know Christ. Amen.